The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Wednesday, November 20th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Your loved ones, they lift your spirits when you're down. They're there to support you in times of uncertainty. They've shared laughs and hugs and kisses and kindness, but also heartbreak and sorrow. But is there a way to say you care, you really care? This holiday season, give the people you care about most the gift that says, I love you. Here's celebrity endorser, Representative John Ratcliffe of Texas. Nothing says you care more than sending Javelin anti-tank missiles. When you give the gift of Javelin anti-tank missiles, you give peace of mind. And if the anti-tank missiles are properly operated, you might give pieces of a T-84 Russian tank flaming and scattered across the Russian steppe. It's an expression that you know and value your loved ones, be they Saudi, Filipino, or a certain robust people who hate corruption and who recently elected an improviser president, again, celebrity endorser John Radcliffe. Nothing says you care more about the Ukrainians than sending Javelin anti-tank missiles. And if you're a feller who's just starting a relationship with a special lady friend, and you want to say I care for you, but aren't ready to go all the way with the expression of love and commitment that is a Javelin anti-tank missile, how about a shoulder-launched anti-tank projectile, the RPG? Nothing says I heart you like RPG. Oh my God, he went to Raytheon. He went to Raytheon. Don't you love your family like the Trump administration loves the Ukrainians? Don't be like their last boyfriend who just gave them blankets. That leaves them cold. For a real gift that shows you care, bring out the big artillery. Literally, big artillery. Every kaboom begins with K. On the show today, seeing is believing, but these hearings are quite frequently not to be believed. And in the case of Gordon Sunland's testimony, I do mean that literally. But first, he was a CIA agent who didn't come in from the cold, but was put on ice. Jeffrey Sterling was imprisoned for almost two years for violations of the Espionage Act after he was found to have leaked information to a New York Times reporter. Sterling is out of prison and out with a new book and out with his side of the story. Jeffrey Sterling, author of Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower, up next. After almost 10 years of working for the CIA, Jeffrey Sterling became the first black case officer to sue the agency for racial discrimination. A prominent journalist wrote about this newsworthy event. The journalist was James Risen. He wrote it in the New York Times. A few years after that, Risen comes out with a book called State of War, The Secret History of the CIA and the Bush Administration. In that book, he writes about a program that Sterling had been working on. It's called Project Merlin. Prosecutors investigated Risen, who would not give up his sources, but nevertheless charged Jeffrey Sterling with being that source. Without direct evidence, Sterling was convicted under the Espionage Act for mishandling national defense information. He served two and a half years. He is out of prison. He is out with a book. Its name is Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Thanks for coming in, Mr. Sterling. Uh, Thanks for having me on. So before we get to the facts that 
landed you in prison, that put you in touch with James Risen. I want to get, as your book spends the bulk of its time doing, a little bit of background. Then I want to ask you some ins and outs of being a CIA case officer. Absolutely. Okay. Mm -hmm. What drew you to the CIA? Um, I was in my third year of law school, sitting uh, at lunch, reading the newspaper uh, one day, and I saw an ad, join the CIA. Uh, it was great. It was a, a guy was drawing a picture and he was looking over a canal. And growing up in small town America, I wanted to get out there at some point and, and see the world. Yeah. And I thought that Cape would be Girardeau. Cape Girardeau. Yeah. Which is where Rush Limbaugh's from. Yes. That's how we know it. <laughs> yes. Usually when I ask people about, or I mention Cape Girardeau, I get blank looks, but then I say, oh, also Rush Limbaugh's hometown. <laughs> right. And the, the lights go on. <laughs> so I, uh, and I also wanted to serve because uh, I had brothers who served in the military. Uh, so that desire to serve was instilled in me seeing them as I was growing up. And I jumped at the opportunity when I saw the ad. And I, I just thought that was a great, unique way to serve and give me the opportunity to get out and see the world. Now you write about some postings in Africa, but you also write about how you learned Farsi. Why Farsi of all the languages? It was fascinating to me when I joined the agency. There really wasn't that much emphasis put on learning a language, which yeah. didn't make any pre sense. It's pre-9-11, by yeah, the way. Pre yeah, pre-9-11. But I had made it known I wanted to learn a language. And growing up, nerdy kid that I was, I stayed home and watched the news. And one of the biggest stories then was the Iran hostage crisis. And I was glued to the TV all the time, read everything I could about it. When that opportunity came, which language to choose? I mean, I was heading towards the Iran task force. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I want to learn Persian. I want mm -hmm. to learn Farsi. It was all culminating for me as a dream come true. And as everything with the agency, I leapt at the opportunity and, and gave it the most I could. Now, there's too much to get into, and the book gets into it, but your suit, your racial discrimination suit against the agency, you know, in a nutshell, it seemed to me that they didn't know what to do with you as a black man, though you would think that that would be a benefit to them since they had so few African-Americans or someone who looked like an African or someone who could maybe look Middle Eastern yep. in, in the agency. And yet they would tell you time after time that you being a black guy really limited how they could deploy you and you wouldn't fit in here, you wouldn't fit in there. And oftentimes your retort was like, you just noticed I'm a black man. Yeah. yeah, they're telling me about their nervousness, I guess, was not as gracious as the way you just described Oh, okay. It. So when <laughs> I was, blunter, yeah. yeah, when I was uh, asking why I wasn't receiving the same tools, uh, the same support, the same uh, opportunities as others. And agency being what it is, had no qualms in looking me in the face and saying, well, you kind of stick out as a big black guy speaking Farsi. And yeah, I might like, say, when did you realize I was black? Yeah. And why does that matter? I mean, I had proven myself, my abilities, even prior to that, being able to go places. I mean, flat out, I don't look like Jack Ryan. Right. Nobody ever expected CIA when they met me. Right. And like, like, do all the Iran hands look Persian? Jack Ryan doesn't look Persian, right? No. You could be Moroccan. You could be a number of different ethnicities. Absolutely. I mean, when I joined the Iran task force, I was the only face of color in that organization. And again, I had proven myself, but I think all along they kind of saw, oh, that was cute. But yeah, you, you still, we still have worries about you, even though they taught me Farsi. Yeah. Trained me. I did quite well uh, within the agency and the work that I did there. But when it comes time to promotion and moving up, um, they saw the color of my skin, finally. Let's talk about Operation Merlin. Okay. Give us, give me the broad sketches of what it was and what you did mm -hmm. as part of it. 
Yeah, uh, the operation was, uh, as you mentioned earlier, was to thwart the Iranian nuclear program by instilling plans for components of a nuclear weapon that would be flawed. Mm-hmm. So, And they wouldn't know that they were flawed, so they would use them in their development. And when they didn't work, the idea was that, okay, it would slow their program down by a number of years. I was in charge of the Russian asset, the Russian scientists that we used to play intermediary to get the plans to the Iranians. Mm-hmm. So my job was to train him yeah. in how to approach Iranians, where, what avenues he could try. And you know, I felt good about it because I was given assurances that they would no one would detect the flaw. Mm-hmm. They had been worked, as they indicated again in the trial, they worked with the national labs. And no one would detect the flaw. Right. And you're not a nuclear physicist. No, you have I'm to not. take them at their word. Your Absolutely. job was the interpersonal relationships. You mm-hmm. put this piece of hardware in the hands of the person. The hardware has to work, yep. like they say. Yeah, and I was assured that the program had been vetted and approved by the highest levels in government. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going, I'm enthusiastic about it. It made sense to me. Then the troubling aspects came up. And the first one was when we first gave those plans to show to the asset. You know, So he should be familiar with them to hand them off to the Iranians. Right. He's presenting himself as an expert. Yes, absolutely. And he is an expert. He, the moment he looked at the plans, he said, this won't work. It's broken. (laughs) And I, bells and alarms went off with me. And my direct supervisors were there. And I talk about it in the book. But I, I said, whoa, wait a minute. This has changed the whole scenario. Yeah. He wasn't supposed to know that they were flawed. He took one glance at it and he right. saw that they were flawed. And if he knows, yeah. someone in Iran's probably going to know. If a scientist gets a hold of it, yeah. they're going to notice, oh, this is broken. And a scientist being a scientist, I'm going to fix it. Right. So the response from my supervisor then and a lot of others was, shut up. I raised my concerns with others within the agency as well. And the same response. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what I was talking about. Or, and if I didn't know what I was talking about, okay, then let's go through the process with this and see why he knew it was flawed and exactly where it was flawed. I was rebuked and eventually kicked out of New York and out of uh, Operation Merlin. Right. So at this point, where were you with your lawsuit, your discrimination suit against them? I had, in the moment that I complained about Merlin, there was all, prior to that, there were some signs that, okay, I'm, I'm had enough of this. But once I started complaining about Merlin, things just kind of went off the scale. Yeah, I was being levied requirements again, three times more than anyone else, threatening to send me home, look bad on my record. And things like, well, wait a minute, you give me the proper tools and I'll be able to do this job better than you ever expected. So they were just coming, a lot of pressure and I'd had enough. That was it. Merlin was the last straw. That was the last straw. For yeah. Me. And I started the EEO internal process, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission uh, process internally. And that pretty much, I didn't know it at the time, signaled the end of my career. You didn't know at the time you were the first black person to sue the CIA for racial discrimination. No, I did not. There may have been other internal processes, but as far as going federal court, I think I was one of the few. When did James Risen write about you? That was, I filed suit shortly after 9-11. I believe the article he wrote came out in 2002. Yeah. And... I had met him through a mutual contact, and it was great. He wanted to hear about the discrimination. You know, he was listening. I was running into walls. Nobody wanted you, you say CIA people sort of go the other way. Yeah. But he wrote the article. It came out and since the agency, of course. But there was no classified information revealed in that article. Right. And that was certainly expressly noted during the trial that I did not reveal classified information to him. But I think that 
just having that relationship with him signed the death knell for me, uh, essentially. Then you go to Senate staffers. You go to the Senate, which was it, the Intel Committee? Yes. Okay. And this was after you had talked to Ryzen and after that article was published? Yes. Okay. Did you seek formal whistleblower status? What was your status when you were talking to these Senate Intel staffers? My status at that time, I was on administrative leave. I think they had concluded the internal process and, of course, ruled against me. And so it was close to actually I was fired by this time. But that was when we were going into Iraq. And I thought that that was something like, well, the CIA wouldn't let I wasn't able to serve with the CIA. Maybe I can serve my country in one way. You know, the dangers of at least bring it up to the attention of our policymakers. And that's why I decided to go to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Now, I had previously actually gone to the House Intelligence Committee about the discrimination. And I necessarily had to give them details about Operation Merlin because that was part of, you know, if they're saying I'm inadequate, but I was involved in this important operation and I helped launch it, regrettably, in a sense. So yeah, I, I did go to the, the Senate Intelligence Committee uh, with my concerns on Merlin. So you met with two staffers there, Donald Stone and Vicki Devol. They took your information. Yes. You had a lawyer, Mark Zaid? Yes. And he is the lawyer, I think he's the lawyer of the whistleblower who's involved in this trial now. He's the big whistleblower lawyer, right? I believe so. Did you have official whistleblower status? Were you protected? I knew from my years in the agency, and I even had worked in our uh, Office of General Counsel at the agency because I am a lawyer. Yeah. So I knew the process and what was allowed, especially regarding classified information that I was allowed to go through. So, But I didn't show up there saying, I want whistleblower status. Mm-hmm. I went through the process I knew was available for me right. uh, to file complaints. And when I went in to meet with them, Mark couldn't be in the meeting because he didn't have proper clearances to hear any of it. I pointed out to them that I'm not here to talk about my discrimination suit. It was still going on. It's like, I've already done that aspect with you. I'm talking about my concerns, the real concerns of dangers to our troops. Yeah. And I disclosed to the two of them every detail I knew about Operation Merlin. Is literally the next time you see them at your trial, they're testifying against you? Yes. Um, What was revealed to me at the trial (sighs) was that, and I didn't know this at the time, either visit I had to either committee, that... Both of them had an affiliation at some point or in some capacity with the CIA. Mm -hmm. So essentially, I was talking to the CIA and they took my concerns, whatever I was saying, right to the agency. Because as was revealed in the trial, he didn't even write a report, anything after my meeting with him. It was only months later when the FBI was investigating. He wrote something. And I think it was only for an hour and a half meeting, maybe two small paragraphs that he wrote. Were they alleging at the trial that that very act of going to the Senate Intel Committee was a violation of the law or ethics or something like that? I don't think they were presenting it as a violation of the law. They did point out that, you know, this was a proper channel for me to take a okay. complaint. Yeah. But I think they were using it as bolstering their point and the basis of the of their charges against me that I was a disgruntled employee. Look mm-hmm. at look at what he's doing. He was already how many years had passed and he had gone. He hadn't complained to anybody else. And that wasn't true. And I think with the two of them on the stand, it was more of the, okay, these are people who may have known about it, but then the final question to all of them, including the current former CIA employees, did you ever leak this information to Jim Risen? No, of course, they would all say no. Right. So they're they're kind of narrowing the, at least in the jurors or the judge's mind, who could it possibly have been? Yeah. Yeah. None of these employees had any qualms with the CIA, uh, but that guy did. Right. Um, so Stone and Divil, do you blame them? Were they, did they have to do that? 
could they have refused to testify? I, I have no blame for them. I mean, that, that's what they were doing. That's what they did. They testified. Um, it was up to the prosecutors, of course, how to use that or anything yeah. like that. But again, what was revealed in the trial, which was just incredible, was that one of them had been subsequently fired from the Senate Intelligence Committee for leaking classified information. Yeah. Yet that didn't mean anything to the judge or the jury or anything like that. So I want to ask you a little bit about the process of writing the book Mm -hmm. and getting the book published. Did you literally write it in prison? No. Actually, I wrote this book shortly after I filed the suit. And I went through the the whole process with the Publications Review Board for clearance. And then they put up, as was demonstrated in the trial, every possible obstacle in my way as I was trying to put this book together. I actually got an agent, put a proposal together that was cleared through the Publications Review Board. I was hopeful, but the agent wasn't able to sell it. So I put it on the shelf for many years because I I was living in Virginia at that time, lost everything. Yeah. Ended up moving back to Missouri, got a new career, a new life. And then, you know, the FBI came to my door and the nightmare continued. Just before sentencing, I was introduced to my agent. She liked it, signed me. And I said, I have a complete book, but it certainly now needs to be updated. (laughs) Um, Just before leaving for prison, I signed on with a publisher. And in prison, I was thinking, oh, I can write on this. I I can do this. But it was so draconian there. There were things that were called computers when they worked. I wasn't able to save anything. So I just went to handwriting. I would handwrite my notes of what I felt would be an update for the book, mail them home. When I got home, I was going through all of them. And it was tough, you know, emotionally going through everything that was there already in the book, Mm -hmm. but then adding things to it. And I finally got it together. Are you on parole? Actually, I just came off probation parole this past July. All right. And congratulations if that's that's proper. I don't know. Yeah. And I was thinking that um, actually I will take it as a congratulations because just looking back at this, it's it's been almost 20 years that I've either been under some sort of investigation on trial and jail and prison related to. You know, the start of it, which was filing, you know, saying no to discrimination in the CIA. So it it was really like a tremendous weight that had been there for a long time had been lifted off this past July. Yeah. Well, listen, good luck with everything. The book lays bare your psychological states at times. It's very honest. It's very raw. And it's an insight. I mean, you're pretty much the only American that I can think of who can write a book like this. So it's fascinating. The name is Unwanted Spy, The Persecution of an American Whistleblower. Jeffrey Sterling is the author. He's been with me. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. I know guys like Gordon Sondland. Outgoing, but not as fun as he thinks. Clever, but not clever enough eager to be in the middle of things, and then can't find a way out. A sense of humor, but not, you know, actually funny. Now, supposedly, uh, you're one amigo. Nobody on this side of the aisle claimed that you were one amigo. I lost my amigos? (laughs) Yeah, not from us. Not from us. No, 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 Gordon. You do not get to make the jokes. Take a clue from Ambassador Volker yesterday. Much has been made of the term three amigos in reference to Secretary Perry, Ambassador Solon, and myself. I've never used that term and frankly cringe when I hear it. That is the proper response because it is stupid 
And because this whole thing, this isn't a joke, supposed hilarity aside, the fact that you made Devin Nunes laugh stands in testament to the fact that this is not a joke. Today, before the House Intelligence Committee, however, Sondland, for the most part, confirmed the Democrats' version of the Ukrainian dealings. As I testified previously, Mr. Giuliani's requests were a quid pro quo. But even though he was essentially the point man on a lot of this, he delivered the news, he conducted the negotiations, he was the quid pro quo silver messenger service, if you will. Sondland's saying it wasn't him. He didn't know. If I had known of all of Mr. Giuliani's dealings or his associations with individuals, some of whom are now under criminal indictment, I personally would not have acquiesced to his participation. Still, given what we knew at the time, what we were asked to do did not appear to be wrong. Well, to Colonel Vindman it did, to Jennifer Williams it did, to George Kent and Ambassador Taylor it did. How was it that things just seemed very much on the up and up to Gordon Sondland? Ah, on this, he and Volker agree. When he was asked to pressure and investigate Burisma, they both say, they thought it was just an investigation into this company, Burisma. Sondland, our ambassador to the EU, never made the connection, never put two and two together. Although several times in his testimony, he did agree that when you do, it equals four. Here is Sondland questioned by Republican staff attorney Steve Castor. Did Ambassador Volker ever relate that to you? No, we just talked in generic terms about, quote, investigating Burisma. Okay. But it had nothing to do with Vice President Biden. I'd never heard Vice President Biden come up until very late in the game. Got that? All right, here it is even more explicitly. I can't recall the exact date the light bulb went on. It could have been as late as once the transcript was out. But it was always Burisma to me, and I didn't know about the connection between Burisma and Biden. The hotelier keeps his corridors a bit dim, no? He thought that folks back home were just really into making sure this Ukrainian natural gas company was operating at their naturalist, I guess. Maybe it was just a huge quality control effort from thousands of miles away. Maybe this was an investigation to see if... The Ukrainian equivalent of Energy Star stickers, when they tell you that Burisma natural gas saves you an average of 50 Harvina per month over the next leading brand to see that 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 was accurate. Can you imagine the moment that Gordon Sondland learned that Burisma meant the Bidens? Maybe he chewed out his staff or maybe, I don't know, he seems like the kind of boss he wants you to believe he started off cool. So he gets in a room with David Holmes over at the U.S. Embassy and he's all like, Holmes. What's up, Holmes? Holmeslice, you gotta keep old Gordo in the loop. Appreciate the heads up. Like Gordo, Zelensky's an improv actor. That was great, because he's gonna yes and us with the aid. And when you said, it's Kiev, not Kiev, I cannot believe it, huh? Huh? See what I did there, Holmes? But why didn't you or anyone else, why did no one tell me Burisma means Biden? Here I am going around. Yeah, got to get Burisma's gas up to snuff. Also, maybe we should look into Burisma's acquisition of Nadragaz VW Vanya. I mean, once one company acquires another company, as Burisma acquired Nadragaz VW Vanya, 
I mean, we got to look into it. That makes sense. But no one ever says Burisma's Biden. That's all I needed. A heads up. Burisma equals Biden. Who knew? Who freaking knew? Well, I'll tell you who knew. He knew. I'm going to say it right now. He knew. I guess it's fine. I guess I understand why he's denying knowledge. Lack of knowledge seems to be a, if not the main get out of jail free card when it comes to this administration. Last night on CNN, Rick Santorum, designated Trump defender, was asked, yes, to defend Trump. He uncorked quite a theory of the case. Again, I go back to a president who is prone to saying erratic things and things that are problematic. So exculpatory evidence, he's erratic and problematic. But Santorum went further, claiming the president was also, in fact, quite infantile. I'd like to compare this to really the obstruction case against the president in, in, on, on the Mueller report. What you had in the obstruction case, you had a bunch of adults around there and you had the president spouting off saying, oh, I wish we should go after this guy. We should go after this guy. But they never did. Why? Because he has adults in the room who put up with his, you know, wild ideas and then they do the right thing. That's exactly what but happened the only here. Wait, wait, wait. Not, off and say, I want to go after these guys, not, but that's, that's not, not what happened right. No, that, that's okay. not actually what happened here. Okay, you hear the other CNN panelists objecting on facts, and that's correct. It's not a good comparison. But if it were a good comparison, it would also be a very not good defense. The erratic baby defense will not work in this case. The erratic baby defense might work if the erratic baby had an inkling to punish a rival but was talked out of it, right? But if the erratic baby actually is so erratic that he offers a bribe or if the erratic baby tries to extort, and if you've ever had an angry toddler on your hand, you know they do try to extort. When the erratic baby does extort, that's extortion. There's no adult in the room backsees on this one. So to acknowledge that the president gave in to his infantile impulses is to acknowledge that the president used his office, let us call it the oval playpen, used his office to pressure a foreign power to give him what he selfishly and childishly wanted. Done deal, game over, time out, no dessert. Sondland didn't know he was just ignorant. Sure, whatever. The president didn't know he's just immature or uninformed or has no impulse control or prone to tantrum or wets himself. All right. I mean, now we understand the motivation behind his guilty actions, but they are guilty actions because, fun fact, President Trump's actually not an infant. He's a 73-year-old president. And I think it would be better for everyone if he spent some time in the naughty chair. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces the gist. He knew Burisma meant Biden, but he had no idea that La La means I love you. Christina DeJosa also produces the gist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Biden, shorthand for Burisma, no duh. But did you know... When someone texts you, yup, it means, are you up for making whoopee? And when someone says making whoopee, that means sexual relations. Where does one get the translation guide for such things? The gist. Of course, Burisma means Biden. But do you know when they say Trump often exhibits a lack of impulse control, what they really mean is pants wetting. Literally, he wets himself. That's what they mean. Oopuru, depuru, dupuru. And thanks for listening.